Dear friends, welcome to the Great Day Podcast. I'm your friend and host, Mayor K. And today, I am so grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast. There are plenty of podcasts out there. Oh, yeah, a whole lot. But you're here today listening to this one. So thank you so much for your support. It means a lot to me. Uh, our guest today is someone who was a guest on some of my favorite podcasts, like the Arby Marcus podcast and the Rich Roll podcast. And today, he's on this podcast. Woo, woo. Rabbi Mordechai Finley is here with us today. He received his PhD in religion and social ethics from the University of Southern California. He served three years in the U.S. Marine Corps and was discharged with the rank of sergeant. He also has a black belt in jiu-jitsu. How cool is that? He also has a counseling practice where he focuses on wisdom, virtue, and managing consciousness. I wish we had more time to chat, and we squeezed in quite a bit in this episode. So without further ado, here's my podcast with Rabbi Mordechai Finley. Rabbi Mordechai Finley, welcome hey. to the podcast. So nice to be here. Long time coming. Very excited to be talking to you. Yeah, likewise, likewise. I um, I was just really excited to. I heard you on some of my favorite podcasts, Rich Wall, Rich Wall, Tim Ferriss, Aubrey Marcus. I mean, legends, big big guys in, in the podcast space. And uh, each time, I, I I want to get more from you. I was so inspired by what you had to share. And uh, growing up in a Jewish Orthodox background, it was so beautiful to hear like how you explain some eloquent, deep concepts in Judaism and the Torah, Hasidus, Kabbalah, and to bring them down in, into a, I wouldn't say even, it's not watered down at all. It has its essence. And yet in a way where someone who didn't go to six years of yeshiva would still appreciate and understand mm-hmm. it. And I think that's a really great talent of yours. And uh, so I just want to, first of all, say thank you and commend you, you on that. Appreciate and, that. Uh, and also, uh, I like to say, you know, Tim's a mutual friend of ours, but uh, one day I'd love to, to get to know Tim. But how, how did you actually end up on, on all those podcasts? A, a very direct path. Uh, I was doing a lot of work on uh, the Yetzirahara, on the inner resistance, uh, very much focused in uh, both the biblical source, rabbinic, Hasidic. And it turns out that as I was teaching this, uh, a guy named Stephen Pressfield, whom I did not know, had published his book, The War of Art. Great book. I love it. And so he heard about me, and he came and took my class. Mm-hmm. And we talked afterwards, and I said, can I take a look at the book? So I got the book, and I realized he and I were writing on the same thing. He called it uh, Resistance, the Big R. And as I read his book, I learned a lot about the Yetzirah. He learned a lot about Resistance. Uh-huh. Actually, in the second book on this topic, Turning Pro, he cites me at the end. We had a long, a long lunch together where I brought up the Kabbalah and so forth. And I think the last couple pages of the book, he, he fit me in. Oh, cool. And, um, and so we've, we've remained uh, friends all these years. Uh, he was on the Ritual podcast. And I believe he said to Ritual something like, well, you've got to talk to my rabbi. Yeah. And so Ritual has people reach out to me. And I said, sure. I, I don't listen to any podcasts, by the way. So yeah. I, don't know, I don't know who anybody is. Yeah. My, my daughters do. Uh-huh. And they tell me what the good ones are. And I start to listen. And I'm drawn back to my reading. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll do it. Uh, so I uh, went to Rich Roll. And he said he's never had a rabbi. And I said, I've, you know, kind of, I, I, had a, I, had a, I was on a jiu-jitsu podcast with Stephen Kesting. But we talked about jiu-jitsu. Mm. And uh, he was great. He, he did 
incredible research, really got my Torah, my, my teaching down, asked all the right questions. And uh, it was just, it was really a, a true meeting with a truly deep and remarkable man. Yeah. I can't say enough good things about ritual. And then from there, I, I went to uh, Aubrey Barkas and then Daily Stoic and yeah. several others that you've never heard of. Uh, and that's how we're here. Wow. Yeah, truly. So yeah. St- Stephen Pressfield. Stephen Pressfield was the uh, right. shout out to Stephen. Big, big shout fan to, of his work. Shout out to Stephen. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a fan of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's, 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 that's really wonderful. And so you already just mentioned it. So why not go there first? The Sahara, the work mm-hmm. around the Yitzhahara. Mm-hmm. Um What would you say is a, the secular term for Yitzhahara and how would you tie that into someone's day-to-day practice, whether they're Jewish or not? I think the best term is Stephen Pressfield's term, resistance. Mm. Uh, but what um, Stephen Pressfield discovered on his own and is very irregular feature in the Jewish tradition is that the uh, Yetzirah, let's go ahead and define it. It comes from the book of uh, uh, Genesis where God is, as it were, ruminating on the prior, what we would call the six chapters. Yeah. And God is very sad. And then God notes, again, this is something of an aside to the camera, yeah. talking about the human being. Kol yetzer machshavu libo rachra kol hayom. Okay, so what does yetzer here mean? It's from the Hebrew word litzor, which means to shape. Mm. So when we call God a yotzer, it's a, a potter. So yotzer means to shape. So it says, kol yetzer machshavot, the shape of the thoughts. The shape of the thoughts. Mm. Libo is translated as heart. But as you know, heart here doesn't mean what it means in English, meaning the, uh, the seat of our, moral, uh, you know, of our moral sentience, as it were. Uh, but rather something like the mind-feeling continuum. So, for example, it says in the Bible, Lo taturu don't follow your heart. It goes somewhat contrary to our modern idea of follow right. your heart. Well, the Bible says don't follow your heart. Right. Don't follow your heart. Don't follow your eyes. So, therefore, lev here doesn't mean heart in the English usage. It means in the biblical usage, which is something like the ego mind surface level of our feelings and emotions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I, I use the word something like the ego mind. So, all the shape of the thoughts of his ego mind are all bad all day long. Okay. So, yetzer hara, the destructive shape. It's normally translated as an urge, and in modern Hebrew it means an urge, uh, for as a yetzer. That's not what it means. So I'm very much against that translation mm. because it doesn't communicate the idea that the inner life has a shape. Okay. Uh, so uh, what if it says, don't follow the shape of your heart, who's that verse talking to? Because okay, we are not our ego mind. We are not our ego self. We'll call that the neshama. In English, I'll call the higher self. Higher self, yeah. So the higher self is that which regulates and guides what I'll call the ego self or the unconscious ego self, which is where the Yetzirahara operates. Mm-hmm. So the great Jewish gift to this, which Stephen Pressfield discovered on his own, is that it is an organized intelligence. It's not just the absence of the good. It is after you. It wants to gnaw away at the well-being of your life uh, some things come easy to us, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have much sway there. But any, anything that's hard for us, like I've met people that are really good at making money, right. but not good spouses or parents. Mm-hmm. And they assume since they're so good at making money, 
if the family's not going well, it must be they, because they are so so wealthy, they're right. so successful. <clears throat> so there's a few things we're good at that the Yetzirah tends to leave alone as a, as a way to deceive us, but it operates against everything else, and it's a constant, gnawing, degrading of our abilities to live with, in my terminology, virtue, which means uh, restraining one's uh, habits of thought, feeling, and speaking so that we don't do destructive things. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is virtue as restraint. Got it. Uh, secondly, rationality. So we actually think well about ourselves, other people, and things in general. One thing I've discovered that I've said often, most people suffer more than they need to because they don't think well. That is the major malady of human beings. Most people suffer more, more than they need to because they don't think well? Precisely. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So, and, okay. And, and, what we, you say, we think, yeah. and then what I call wisdom as insight. This is a very particular kind of wisdom, yeah. which is the ability to manage the inner life. Applied mm. wisdom to manage the, uh, the inner life. Um, and then applied wisdom in interpersonal relationships. We call that processing with other people. And then the, then the life of depth. Mm. Uh, so if we look at this as virtue, rationality, wisdom one, re- regulating your inner life, uh, wisdom two, regulating our relationship with other people, and then a life of depth. Uh, those, I think, are key to our finding meaning and purpose in life and living according to our, our values and vision. The Yetzirah operates at every level. Wow. And no matter how much work one does in themselves, the Yetzirah is, is always there. It's waiting for the next day. Always. So yeah, you, you know, there's, there's a famous... A little Hasidic story that I'm sure you know. Uh, the baby wakes up in the morning, and it's cold outside, and the bed is warm and soft. Yeah. And um, uh, the Yetzirah says, um, uh, why are you up so early? Go to sleep. What are you doing up? And he says to the Yetzirah, you're up. As soon as we wake up, he's there. Yeah. Uh, for men, it's a he. For women, it's usually a she. But it's there. Mm. It's there operating. Depending on what your life is about, some things come easy. Whatever you find difficult, it's there. Would you say this, this sounds similar to, like, say, capital T trauma? Like, you could say someone who's really good with money, but he's not really great with relationships. You could say, oh, being that he was a child and he was, you know, mishandled and got the emotional support he got, so he doesn't work that. He doesn't work well with other relationships. Or is it does it work on a much deeper level than? Well, I, I don't know. Hide behind. That's a great question. I don't know where what 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 is deeper because we, we both know of people that have been traumatized, sure, didn't have extensive trauma therapy, and went on and rebuilt their lives. I, when I, I used to teach Holocaust at USC, I had a woman sitting in front of me who saw her two children thrown, in, thrown into a, 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 an oven, thrown into a fire pit. Mm. And she came to America, did not speak the language, uh, everything taken from her. She rebuilt herself. Um, right. She learned the language. She... Bought an apartment building eventually. She's a real estate developer. A very well put together woman. And somebody in the class said, um, are there any long after effects? And she said, um, I'm really scared of dogs. Wow. Other than that, I have a husband. I have beautiful children. Right. I have a thriving business. And I, I got to tell you, Mayor, I looked at her in awe. Yeah. So I don't know if there's a single rule about what happens and then how we are. Mm-hmm. Certainly people have been traumatized by their parents. Sure. But then I've known people who've been traumatized by their parents and didn't do extensive trauma work. And other people that you would think, well, that, that wasn't the most outrageous thing they've heard. Right. Um, but they had to do a lot of trauma work. So I'm going to put trauma in a different category. Some injury to the soul 
that happens when one is vulnerable that tends to uh, uh, assert itself to make itself present in relationships. But let's take a look at this. So a person, let's say, has trauma. So one thing that they tend to do is uh, seek approval, avoid conflict, not talk. And so they share with me, you know, I have an angry wife or husband or an angry teenage kid. And yeah. I say, well, let's look at virtue. I said, seeking approval in your case is not virtuous. Not responding is not virtuous. So virtuous for you is speaking up and taking a stand. So I've worked with people sometimes for six months on exactly what to say to their angry spouse. Wow. And train and train and train and train and trepidation and palpitations and breaking out in sweats. But we trained a script. This is a very big thing in my work at the virtue level. Yeah. What exactly, not how do you feel, not how do they feel, but when they say that thing, which they're going to say again because we're creatures of habit. Sure. What are you going to say back? Mm. And this woman trained and trained and trained, and she said it, and it utterly changed the relationship. Wow. Okay. Wow. So now she had gone to therapy, but she had learned a, learned a virtue script. So for some people, virtue is talking less. For other people, virtue is setting a boundary. You never know what the virtue is until you get there. But I believe right. that a focus on Virtue, which means how you are present to the world, um, is, the, is the beginning of going down to the deeper work. So virtue, rationality, wisdom, and depth. So I, this, I don't think it's right for, for everybody, yeah. but for many people, starting with, with virtue, uh, managing how they think, feel, speak, and act is the beginning of their transformation. Truly, and 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 I love how you broke down the difference between what trauma is and what it, what and and the it's a hard that it, it it could perhaps use that as a mechanism as a tool as a vehicle to get what it wants for you to stop you in your tracks and to destroy your life, mm-hmm. but it doesn't just lie in trauma. If you got rid of your trauma, it's a hard yeah, it's and, gone. And it's, many people have a terrible yet's around there. They, there's no evidence of trauma, right? And right. other people, the Yetzirah uses the trauma. Correct. Like, exactly. I'm like this because of exactly. my trauma. Yes. We and don't know why we are as we are. Sly, and, right, in, yeah. all the, in those ways. When, um, does, I want to go back to one sure. of the things that you did mention was that you said about thinking rightly, right? Mm-hmm. To think right. Um, I found that a lot of people talk about to feel more than to think. Mm-hmm. So what's the right way to think, you'd say? What, what is, um, how, and what would that, and how would that affect someone's life positively? Uh, let's talk about right thinking in general. So right thinking in general, first of all, is connected to reality. Now, many people have an unconscious uh, attachment to how things should be. Yeah, don't should love yourself, as they say. Yeah. A person says, shouldn't a wife be this? Shouldn't uh, my child be this? And my response is, how is your husband? How is the child? How, what are they like actually? Mm. What are you like actually? So this is bad thinking. Because when you think with a should... And they don't meet the standard, then you get depressed or angry. Right. So what if you were reality-based? This is what my spouse is like. Well, should they be different? I said, I don't know. Right. I said, well, let's first describe how they are. That's one thing. So part of thinking well is attachment to reality. Number two is building theories based on reality. So many people have theories that have no reality basis. They, mm. People just either, either, like in politics, we call it ideology, the people try to squeeze reality into ideology. It never works. It always ends in disaster. And then people actually do it with their own lives as well. Mm-hmm. They say they think ideologically. It doesn't match reality. And they end up either making mistakes or unfulfilled. Uh, so I, I remember when I was, one thing I thought when I was younger, I thought to myself, I just want to be happy. 
Right. Well, that's very poor thinking. Mm. Right. Right. What is happiness? Right. Yeah. And so, and, and then where does sacrifice come in? Where does being of service to other people come in? Where does the nobility of suffering come in? It was a very superficial thought. Mm. So I remember, I want to be happy when it's time to be happy. You like, uh, as we say in Kohelet, there's a time to be happy and a time to be sad, and a time to self-sacrifice, and a time to benefit from other people willing to sacrifice to you. So the world is complex. So, so rationality, by the way, one thing I realized is many people are averse to complexity. Yeah. They're averse to complex thinking. Black and white thinking. Yeah, and it, it, it feels good to think black and white, uh, to think, have these kind of ideological, I call them slogans, yes. about relationships, about children, and slogans stop us. The Yetzirah loves slogans. Mm. Okay. It's neat. It's packaged. It's, yeah, it's, it's neat, easy. Packaged. And right. then, of course, slogans may fit one thing. And they may be a bit of a guide to other things. But in general, I, I prefer thinking complexly. Now, that takes work and training. Yeah. People are not... And mistakes too. You'll, you won't get it right the first time either. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You right. have to. You have to like. Well, what are the facts? That's even hard to get. What are the facts? Yeah. What theory accounts from the facts? What is it that I want? Are mm. my needs valid? Yeah. So there's a lot of work in it. People say, "Well, I got to do all this thinking before I go in the world." I said, "Well, what's the second best? Like, yeah. not think." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, that's yeah, and I think that's sometimes people's default is just doing what others have done or or follow the the herd. Yeah, or, or do it not what others have done. Yeah. There's the contrarian person. Mm-hmm. There's the accommodating person. Um, and thinking is neither. So thinking is something. Now, thinking has to be rooted in uh, thinking well, reasoning well. It has to be rooted in your personality. We all have personalities. It has to be rooted in the personalities of other people. That's why slogans don't work. They say, well, shouldn't kids be this way? And I say, which kid? Yeah. And which parent? And what are you after? Yeah. So why I find that when I coach people in thinking well, their suffering goes down. And where would be a spot, a good place for someone to begin to, A, catch himself to realize, hey, I'm not thinking well, mm-hmm. and to take some steps to be able to start thinking better? Well, the first thing, this goes from Albert, Albert uh, Ellis's work, um, if I have this right. Uh, yes. Uh, Albert Ellis, did a, throughout his entire life, he wrote books on anger. And uh, he had a nice acronym, uh, ABCD. Hmm. Uh, A is the activating or adverse event okay, that activates a belief system mm-hmm. on typically how people should be, which then leads to an emotional consequence. So, for example, my spouse was unkind to me, belief system, they shouldn't be, emotional consequence, anger or depression. Mm. So Albert Ellis says, let's go to the belief. My wife, my husband should never be angry with me. Is that a rational belief? No, because they're a human being and they have bad days. Okay, that's number one. Number two, my belief that if they are angry with me, my belief is I should get angry back or depressed. Maybe you should hold the line. Maybe you should be more consciously connected to your values. So what Albert Ellis said was activating adverse events, mm-hmm. go through an unconscious belief system, producing an untoward emotional consequence. So how do you start? Look at the emotional consequences of your belief systems. You don't know it's from a belief system. But do you feel bad? Do you feel angry, depressed, sullen, disconnected? Are you making other people feel bad? Mm. Now, from that evidence, there is an unconscious belief system that's producing it, not the activating event. Uh, I'll give you an example I always use. People, uh, People 
asked about this. And I said, but Rabbi Finley, if someone were yelling at you and calling you names, wouldn't you get mad? I said, let me, let me tell you what happened. Yeah. I lived in San Diego, California for three months. And there were these uh, four guys. Every single day, one of them was yelling, insulting, beating me, um, acting horribly. And I never got upset once. They go, wow, what was that? I said, it's called Marine Corps boot camp. <laughs> never once put my hands on my hips and said, no, good, sir. And they said, oh, well, marriage isn't boot camp. I say, there you are mistaken. Uh-huh. Okay. It, relationships humanize us. We will be triggered in unimaginable ways when we don't get our needs met by our spouses, children, other people. Yeah. And this is where the discipline is. Yeah, you're in a bad place. I'm not going there. I'm going to hold the line. I'm going to try to, you know, draw, you know, kind, clear, firm boundaries. I'm going to try to be conscious here. Yes. But I don't have to go where you are. Now, that's a belief system. So how do you start? How am I feeling? And are my feelings good? Do I have well-being? If not, what is the unconscious belief that is producing these feelings? So this is where Albert Ellis is brilliant. Feelings come from beliefs. Mm. That's that's hundred percent true. That's hundred yeah. percent true. I, I I agree with you that tremendously. And before we jump into the boot camp thing, because people yeah. might be thinking like, "What yeah. boot camp? What's this <laughs> rabbi even talking about? Yeah, right. Are you talking about <clears throat> in theory or, or actually?" Yeah. Um, when when someone starts finding themselves, you know, being triggered and and seeing that their thoughts are are not doing well, I think people it's easier to listen to a podcast, right? And to go ahead and, and hear this knowledge or go to a shear or to a class and to read a book. Um, what actual steps can one take if, if they're not, if they're not, if they didn't go to a boot camp, if they didn't grow up in a, in a household that perhaps taught them how to regulate their emotions or how to talk to another human when they're triggered. Um, where, where's that first step? You have to train every day. I train every day. And this is something that, you know, I've been uh, doing uh, martial arts my whole life, but Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in particular for the past 22 years. Right. You're a black belt. Uh, yeah. I had to say I'm a second, uh, second stripe black belt. Wow. And um, I think Rich Roll said that you're the only rabbi with the black belt in Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu. And I think my response was, and if I'm not, I'm sure I'm going to hear from them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They haven't showed up yet, so. They haven't showed up yet. All right. I so I stay ready. Yeah, I, just, I just trained this week. I mean, I, wow, you're I, still training. Still training. Wow. Absolutely. That's right. amazing. If, if you don't mind me asking mm-hmm. how, at what age you're still training at? Um, 67 and a half. That's incredible. Yeah. I, it's incredible. I mean, I talk about living like beliefs and living beliefs. I mean, yeah. people are like, oh, I'm 50, I'm 40, I'm 60, I'm too old. Yeah. No. no I, I rolled uh, yesterday uh, with a pretty good young Blue belt, probably in his early 20s. So I, I you know, so he's uh, 45 years younger than me. Wow. Unbelievable. And, uh, you know, so it's all <clears throat> skills, pressure, angles, yeah. slowing them down. And so that's where just training, 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 training. So you, you show up. You know, jiu is not an, an accumulation of moves. It's where, like, the notes turn into a song. So wow. you can, you know, you can learn notes and scales, but you got to play that music every day, which I've been doing three, four times a week for 22 years. Okay. So when I was developing my wisdom virtue approach, it was very much influenced by jujitsu because I was and remained sick for jujitsu. <laughs> yeah, right? well. And I started looking at, I'm expanding this a bit. We have a white belt come in and the first thing you learn is a white belt. When someone gets on top of you, move your hips. Yeah. And they would push with their arms and they would get arm locked. Mm. It would say, Put your, put your elbows in, put your frames up, protect your neck, protect your wrist, and move your hips. And we would say it for two months. 
And then we would see them do it. And they were, oh, it clicks. move my hips, yeah. right? You know, twice a week for two months, they're hearing it. They kept getting tapped out. And right. one day, they don't get tapped out in, in that position. So what I realized is all the therapy in the world, mm. if you don't learn how to move your hips. So what's the first move your hips in interpersonal communication? Don't talk. Mm. So your feelings get under control. Mm. Don't be defensive. Don't be angry. Don't talk. Explain yourself. Just don't talk. Breathe. Go to script, which is a move. So if anybody's listening to this, they say, well, what do I do next? I would say, first of all, when you're feeling distraught, don't talk. Breathe. Mm. Go to a script and train that every day for the rest of your life. So one thing that probably differs in the wisdom work as I teach it, if I say to people, if you're not willing to train five days a week, it's really interesting. It will not work. Right. Right. It stays in, stays in the ideas. stays in the theoretical. Yeah. 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 It's like watching a movie. It's not, I mean, it doesn't, it's not transformative unless you train. Mm. Truly. Right. So when, to just jump back to the, um, the jujitsu and, and this briefly, because I want to move on to some other things. What are, what drew you to jujitsu initially? Mm-hmm. And what are some practical, it sounds like a game of chess, but just mm-hmm. using your, your bodies and what, what are some practical takeaways that you've, you know, from jujitsu, like you just mentioned, like, you know, moving your hips, this, this could sort of connect to communication. Uh, don't react right away. What are some other, maybe two or three ideas uh, that, to, that transfer to, to outside the ring? To tell you the truth, before? um, no matter what people say about martial arts or any other activity, it doesn't transfer unless you want it to transfer. There's no automatic right. transfer. Right. There are people that do jujitsu and who are immature with their spouses. There's sure. no automatic transfer. There are people that are incredibly conscious with their spouses and children, and they don't do jujitsu. So mm-hmm. there's no one-to-one. I'm attracted to it because I've always been attracted to martial arts. It probably has to do with trauma. Uh, growing a white kid in Compton. Uh, I was on the receiving end of a lot of racist wow. brutality and uh, the experience of finding yourself defenseless and beaten up a lot. It, Physically, you were yeah. bullied, bullied around, pushed around? Uh, beat up. Beat up. I mean, I, I was sugarcoating it there. You're, no, no, you were no, beat up. No, I, I could tell you stories that would, that would, that would really make your skin, skin, raise the hair on your skin and make your skin crawl. It was, wow. uh, it was really brutal. I mean, the things you read about today, um, you know, going on in violent communities, uh, that, that was where I lived. That was, you know, Compton, California, late 60s was a bad place. Wow. So ever since then, I know, I, you know ha- I've had, uh, this is where the kind of dealing with the unconscious is, um, I have a need to be able to defend myself. Simple as that. That's one thing that drove me into the Marine Corps. Mm. I, I'm, I'm positive as I look back on it. One of the 15 things, one of them. Yeah. The big one. Yeah. And then in the Marines, I learned some good solid self-defense. After the Marines, I took Shotokan karate for 20 years. Wow. And then I saw the uh, first UFC where the Gracies were beating the karate guys. Oh. And I thought, whoa, my wasted youth. <laughs> you know, no more karate for me. Yeah. And I went down to my local jiu-jitsu studio. And, it, um, it, you, know, it, it's, you know, it's the foundation of MMA. Right. You have to have a good stand-up game. You have to have takedowns. And you have to know how to fight on the ground. Yeah, and how to roll. Yeah, exactly. So what happened with me, though, as I was um, beginning to figure out What's the method? Because I'm a good counselor, but I didn't think I had a method. I used Albert Ellis. I used uh, William Glazer. I used Roberto Sagioli. You know, I had a, 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 a toolkit. Yeah. And I started to see, I teach a series of moves in an incremental way. 
I teach people white belt, blue belt, purple belt, brown belt, black belt. And I began to see uh, wisdom work as a, as a methodology, mm-hmm. meaning a set of moves, such as don't speak, breathe, go to script. Yeah. So I have dozens of these, of these so-called moves. Now, another person could go to jujitsu and not apply it to their psychological practice, inner yeah. practice or others. So I don't think there's anything direct other than it's just serendipitous that my counseling practice and the inner game of jujitsu match up rather nicely. Yeah, got it. Yeah, that sounds right. That, in anything in life, we could always just keep it to one superficial level or just bring it back in. So you grew up in Compton. Uh, we moved there when I was 10. We, I spent my first year in Anaheim when there were still orange, orange groves. Oh, wow. Uh, we moved to Compton in 1964. Wow. Uh, Watts Rice was the next year, so white flight. My parents were uh, strong liberal Democrats, and they said that white people have to learn to be minorities, and we did, and then a couple of years, the neighborhood went, went uh, uh, um, I, you know, maybe 1% of the kids uh, were hostile to white people, but that 1% were very present, and we finally left in 1969, so I spent uh, five years there, but five very formative years, and then we moved the next city over to Linwood, California. Wow. Wow. That's, I mean, that it sounds like a very intense time in your life. And yeah. a time that it's formative. What happens to you between ages 10 and 14 are some ways determinative. Huge. You say, so, I mean, I also know like from zero to four, four to eight, I mean, these are, these are big crucial years. Yeah. And certainly developing one's identity as a teenager, as a male, yeah. with the idea of, you know, I didn't think the girls got jumped as much as the guys did. I mean, the white boys were really, really suffered. Uh, by the way, I have to say the friends on my street, they, they fought for me. I have, I have stories that belong in the annals of humankind, how my friends were willing to defend me. Wow. But they couldn't be with me all the time. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I want to hear just one story. One story toward the end, when I was one of the few white kids left, uh, they had a thing called a free-for-all, where everybody starts swinging on each other. But I found myself always in the middle. Sounds like the purge. Oh my uh, God. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was, um, it was uh, ra- as a race riot in the guise of a free-for-all. And then I began, I began asking myself, why well, am I in the middle of these things, right? And I realized, oh, they're, 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 they're coming they're, at you. Yeah, they're coming at me. Yeah. It's, it's a race riot. So I would run. I would hide somewhere. They'd follow me and say, free-for-all. So I hid somewhere, like in the, around the teachers, and I had to go home. So I walk out to the sidewalk, and there's about 100 people waiting for me. Wow. Including a couple of my main tormentors. Uh, like the, the, the leaders of the pack. My friend, uh, Daniel Lee, um, he called me Finley. He said, Finley, wait here. And he, I can't, I'll, I'll tear it when I say it. He looks at these hundred people and says, we're in eighth grade. Wow. He says, if you want to get to Finley, you got to get through me. <sighs> wow. Faced down a hundred people. Wow. And they all looked. Nobody wanted to fight with Daniel Lee. Wow. You know, Daniel Lee was a, yeah. Big, uh, like eighth grade, but I just remember, because we used to box, you know, big yeah. fist, big guy. lean, mm. you know, and he put his arm around my shoulder, walked me right through this crowd. This, this was like from a movie. Wow. I can't, that's, I'm and, getting chills. I'm I know. Out. This is Daniel Lee. Daniel Lee was one of them. And I, I have others, but that was a. That's a righteous human right that's there. That's a righteous human being. Right there. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Daniel. Daniel Lee. And it's, it's so wild. They like, talking about formative. Like, I mean, here you are, like, 
what, it's like 50 years later and you could, mm-hmm. you could go back to that place. It's, these are crucial moments. It's, these stuff really hold on. And I say this out loud because I was bullied as a young kid and, um, and people may think to themselves, oh, like, it'll happen years ago. What do I care? I was just a kid. I was bullied. But they don't realize how this kind of stuff no, could affect you. It's, it could affect you. Years I can't see the movie straight out of Compton. Yeah. Oh, I, could, I can't it brings see up it. way too I, much. I, I, I heard about it. I thought to myself, it will be torture for me to sit through that movie. Yeah. Yeah. No way. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's still, you know, sometimes when people say, well, what else? And I go into it. People say, okay, that's enough. Good yeah. yeah. Like, no yeah. more. Because, yeah, but anyway, when you get beat, those beatings go in. I'm defenseless. There's hatred. Um, yeah, that goes inside. And then you live a regular life. And then I, when I realize, wow, jujitsu is my uh, way to deal with the trauma. Mm-hmm. So uh, I haven't been admitting this you know, for that many years, but someone finally said, Rabbi, please, come on. Yeah. I said, okay, I'm dealing with trauma. <laughs> and this is how I, this is and how I do What it. I do is I learn to defend myself. Right, right. And every now and then I say, today's the day when I win a match. I don't, I don't usually go for the tap. Mm-hmm. I'm more of a defensive player. But sometimes I say to myself, um, today I got to put on the predator face uh-huh. and the fangs got to come out. I'm going to win a match just to make sure I still, still have it. that in me. Right. Maybe once a month. There you go. Right. Yeah. You, you can show, show yourself that yeah, you, you can defend yourself. Yeah. I can, I can, I can take care of, you can yeah. take care of little, little yeah. Mordecai. Yeah. I can take care of him. Yeah. 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 I, I got you, man. Yeah. hundred percent. It's a yeah. foreign work. It's, yeah. So, uh, yeah, right. it, it's a trip because I'm known as a super nice guy at my club. And people say, what happened to Mr. Nice? <laughs> yeah, he's choking somebody out <laughs> I there. Say, Today's the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I like, this, I, like to, I like to be in the in the studio or the yeah, cold. It's, it's a nice group. You'd love it. Yeah. yeah. Well, so t- take me back quickly. I plug Chris Liscandro, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Club, Sherman Oaks, California. All right, we'll put it in the show notes. Hundred yeah. percent. Um, I want to. I did want to quickly. I do want to tap into the uh, your your training in the in the Marines, and and then sort of go through your life and, and pull some wisdom from that. But before we do, we did touch on your friend Daniel. Daniel Lee, right? Daniel Lee, and he's. Um, I take it he wasn't Jewish. A black guy. Black guy. Yeah. Black, black non-Jewish. Yeah. Black non-Jewish guy who stood up for you. A righteous soul. So, so exactly. and yeah. and 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 this is something that's been on my mind. So I just want to jump into that. And I want to hear your opinion on this is that we know about Jews and they say we have a special soul, right? We have this mission on earth and we're allowed upon the nations, which I want to love to hear what you think about that. But do you, what, what are your thoughts about like there's teachings that Jewish, that Jews have a different soul or a different piece of a soul or a higher soul or we have different missions? I guess where I'm going with this is that I have this, you know, I grew up in a world where like we are, as Jewish people, we have a certain responsibility. We were given the Ten Commandments. We have a certain mission in this world and light upon the nations. But for me, I still, and this is vulnerable and I'm sharing this because I, I still struggle with that because the way I see the world is that we're all God's children. We all have a soul and we all come from source. And, and we see today now more than ever with technology that there are teachers, Jewish and not Jewish, who are sharing truth, capital T truth, that all stem from source. Um, so where does, where does, What's your opinion on that? Do we are we different? And no, not at the soul level. Uh, so this comes from the Kuzari. The Kuzari teaches about the special Jewish soul. The Rambam, as far as I know, is entirely against it. Moses Maimonides. I mean, I think he would be repelled by the idea. Uh, so you have to find which you know which stream to go with. So in this, I'm much more like Maimonides. Uh, remember, Maimonides studied Plato. He studied Socrates. There's no one like them in, in, in a certain way. And he knew that he was tapping into people that knew God. So there's no way that he could say. And by the way, he, uh, 
it was first the Muslims, uh, Al-Ghazali and Al-Farabi, and then you know, he grew up in that environment and then bequeathed it to, for example, Thomas Aquinas. So there's a straight line from the Islamic encounter with Greek philosophy to the Jewish encounter to the Christian encounter. None of them would say that there's anything like an ethnic special soul. Uh, so I don't believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. So the idea of the being a light upon the nations, what do you mean by, what do you take from that? Well, remember, if you look where it's said in Isaiah, God is talking to Isaiah, that Isaiah is a light to the nation. And we've taken that to be people of Israel. Well, I would like it that every nation saw itself as being on a special calling to bring light to humankind. I mean, I would hope that every nation sees themselves that way. So we're going to say we're going to be a light to the nations. Exactly how? So typically that means in our conduct, and unfortunately, you and I both know people that are not aligned to the nations. Sure. I mean, their conduct is not exemplary in any way. Yeah. Uh, but it is you know, one of our callings uh, that I, I don't see myself truly as a light to the nations. Um, but I try to live a righteous life at a human and a Jewish standard. So I had a, at a counseling meeting recently with a young man uh, taking my classes and I asked him, as he was trying to figure out what he stood for, what his values were, mm. I said, well, pick someone that you profoundly revere and admire. He said, well, you. Right? I went, whoa. <laughs> I said, thank you, man. That's, That's like, sweet. Yeah, sweet. So, yeah, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that, to tell you the truth. Yeah. I really spend my time thinking about myself as a person, my teaching, my interpersonal relationships, and, and, and I know what I teach works. I, I mean, people have said to me, I, my classes are full of people that say, this has changed my life. So I feel like my calling is to get this teaching out there, many other teachings as well, but, but mostly the wisdom and virtue teaching. I, is it, will it enlighten people? Absolutely. Is it connected to Jewish sources? To some degree. But I don't really think about that. I just do it. So do you feel, and I know you've, you've had your own journey to finding Judaism for as, as a, you know, identifying as a Jewish or growing up because... To give some, you know, cashing up to some people, your mom is Jewish, but your dad converted. Right. He wasn't Jewish initially. He converted um, to, to Judaism. Um, that being said, you, 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 if I understood correctly, I read it in an article where, like, you had the freedom to decide. There was no, like, religion my, or my way of life. My home was like the homes of most secular, I think particularly on the, on the, on the left. Yeah. Uh, you could be any religion you want. Yeah, mom was brought up Jewish, dad was brought up Catholic. You choose. Mm. Okay. So then, so that, what, that, I, I and a million other kids were right. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. So with all these now, this options open. Um, what what drew you to Judaism? Uh, I was ordered. Um, this was I was turning uh, thirteen in nineteen sixty-seven, the more nineteen fifty-four December, mm. and in May of sixty-seven. Uh, the Six Days War was heating up in May. I saw my mother go to the television. If you've ever gone back and looked at the speeches of Nasser and others, it was murder the Jews, destroy the Jews, pictures of mountains of skulls driving the Jews into the sea. And my mother was very distraught. And I said, Mom, what's up? And she said, they're going to destroy Israel. And I said, why does that matter to us? You know, we were like in Vietnam. And she said, okay, you remember when I said you can be any religion you want? I said, yeah. She said, no, actually, that's not true anymore. You're Jewish. I'm Jewish. You're Jewish. And we're part of the Jewish people. Mm. And they both sat me down and said, 
we are going to affiliate with the synagogue. You're going to have a bar mitzvah. We're going to be a Jewish family. And I said, okay, well, what does that mean? Yeah, right. And so I asked my, my dad, well, what's a bar mitzvah? I'd never heard of it. Right. Well, it, right. So my, uh, we had Jewish relatives in L.A. that I didn't know about. We were living in Anaheim. Hmm. And then when we moved to Compton, I just knew every now and then my parents would disappear on a Saturday morning for L.A. dressed up. So my dad had been to a couple of bar mitzvahs. So uh-huh. my dad says to me, this is Emmis, this is true. He says to me, well, there's a lot of Hebrew. At this point, he's not Jewish. No, no. Right. Just explain to me he's what, what, what I'm going to do. Right. We're going to take, yeah. uh, there's a lot of Hebrew. Uh, you wear a little hat. <laughs> he says, you can't smoke. And you park two blocks away. I said, wait, you want me to Hebrew and a little hat and don't smoke Smoking. and I don't drive? He said, there's more to it than that. We're going to take you to the rabbi. And that was my introduction to Judaism. Wow. Unbelievable. They took me to the rabbi and yeah. the idea was, you are having a bar mitzvah. There was no question anymore. Yeah. That really triggered something in your mom, huh? That really opened something up in her. Six day, I mean, there six was day a war. huge Jewish awakening around the 60s war. I mean, it, it is documented. Uh, Stephen Pressfield talks about it in his book, uh, An American Jew. May, June 67 was, was a, 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 a seismic shift in Jewish identity around the world. Wow. It was just something so obvious, like, wow, it doesn't matter if I identify or not. People are out there to, to, to destroy, to, to destroy like, this, my people. They're going to finish the Holocaust. Right. And, and then there was this great trepidation. And then the Israeli victory. Mm, uh, miraculous. Was, it, it did seem otherworldly. Uh, and all across the country, all across the world. Jewish identity utterly shifted. Mm. Uh, so we, we were part of a, of, a, of, a, of a national, international, unorganized movement uh, uh, as a consequence of the Six Days War. Mm. Wow. And just to finish, to finish that up, so you, you became Bar Mitzvah naturally learning and studying, but during that time, your dad also did his yeah, own. Yeah, my dad studied with the rabbi too. At, during that time. Wow, yeah. what a beautiful yeah. Like, yeah. relation. It was. Bonding. Uh, yeah, we went to services every Friday night. I mean, wow. we went from Friday night is whatever night. You know, I used to go to the movies on Friday nights in synagogue every Friday night. My friend, my friend said, where are you? I said, I'm in synagogue. What's up? We go to synagogue every Friday night. And then, uh, you know, so movie night was Saturday night. And uh, we didn't really even know. We, my parents asked the rabbi, what do we need to do? And the rabbi said, every Friday night. Okay, so we were so new to this. Wow. We did not know that you don't have to do what the rabbi says. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are newbies in the lot. What whatever the rabbi says, we follow. Told us no trafe and don't mix milk and meat. Come every Friday. Went okay, okay, okay. If he would have said Saturdays, we would have been there. He just never mentioned it. Wow. So I remember one time I'm sitting at home on a Saturday morning. I get a phone call from the synagogue. The rabbi says, uh, "We need you down here." I said, "For what? For a minion?" I, you know, we need ten mail. I said, "Okay." So I go down there. I go. You guys do this every Saturday? Like, I didn't even know. Did I get the memo? I didn't, I didn't get that memo. Whoa. So, uh, wow. Wow. That's right. It's, yeah, it's I know, pretty huh? amazing. We, pretty we amazing. were so new. We didn't know anything. That was, that's, that's incredible. I didn't so inc- know the word garnished. That's, that's incredible. And that only judges from the fact of like, we're like, you know, it's Robbie Akiva story here. Like mm-hmm. he only started at 40. Like you, you know, you, you didn't grow up with any of this. And, and started um, at 12. Started. I'll tell you one, a couple of things. One is, the cantor was a Holocaust survivor, and he didn't speak much, much English. Mm. But I think he would have what's called a tenor voice. And he was transportive. I, I had never heard adults sing. Secondly, the rabbi, who was a German emigre, mm. left in the 30s, highly intelligent man. So we're sitting in a room with incredibly deep music, 
and an intelligent man saying smart things. And there's a bunch of adults sitting around listening to this. I didn't know that this existed, that adults gathered for high culture. I love the smell of the the Silverman Sidur. I love the Sidur. I love the chairs. I loved everything about it. Wow. It was, I, I, I was never one of these people that didn't like services or Hebrew school. I always loved it. You loved it. And was that a moment where you thought one day you would be a rabbi? I'm sure. It played a, played a, yeah, yeah. some sort of role. Yeah. Fast forward a bit, you subconsciously now we sort of figured out, okay, you want to defend yourself. But then, but then after high school, what drew you to join the Marine Corps? The, the motivating thought was another part of my spiritual journey, which... I've taken for granted, but because of the few podcasts I've been, I've, I've reflected on it. Something extraordinary happened to me when I was in 11th grade. There was a sp- spiritual teacher in my high school named Jack Bishop, who, it's a complex story, which I'll skip now, but he invited me to be his student. I didn't know at the time, I didn't discover until 30 years later, that he was in the Gurdjieff school. So anybody's heard of, uh, of uh, a Gurdjieff or Gurdjieff school of thought? Well, he, he was in that. So he trained me, and he trained me in consciousness. And isolating consciousness, I call it the light in the attic, that there's always a ner ha the light of the soul on, we just don't know it, yeah. what it means to go there and go to the light and live by the light. And the pintalid, the, 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 the Yeah, you the can soul. call it the pintalid, you could call it the, the, the Svasem calls it the chiyut, yeah. the inner vitality. So he called it a, a light that is an awareness. Uh, you know, this is more like in the Kabbalah, you have the five levels of the soul, uh, uh, neshep, Ruach, Neshama, and then Chayechida. It's more like Chaya. It stands right outside the human being that you can tap into. I didn't know the word, of course. And so he trained me. And um, by the time of my 12th grade, I felt I wasn't worthy because this was, you know, 17, 18 years old, Southern California, 1972, 73. Everything in my culture was against the idea of living with a kind of purity. So I thought, do I need to go to India, to an mm. ashram? I, I had to get out of there. And um, Vietnam had just ended. Uh, my brother-in-law had been a Marine. And it was a, and I, I was a World War II buff, so I knew a lot about the Marine Corps. So I thought, well, I'll go in the military. So I went down to the different recruiting offices. And Air Force said, we have bear machines in the barracks. And the Army guy said, you can finish your college degree in boot camp. And the Marine guy said, no, it's going to be really hard for you. I went, sign me up. That's the one I want. Right. You were looking for that I challenge. was looking, you were looking to be spiritually purified. And I, it's interesting enough, I wouldn't think the Marine Corps would be a spiritual program. One wouldn't think. Physically, you know, physically, yeah, I want to be buff. I want to do a thousand push-ups, you know. I want to maybe even grow to get some discipline. But would I say that spiritual? I, not, not me. I, I knew it was spiritual without even knowing it because the inner resources you have to have to do it and uh, to, get, to get through it, especially for a person of spirit like myself. I mean, this was to stop the pot and stop the running around and stop acting crazy and all that stuff. In boot camp, you can't do any of that. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you are restricted. And it, it's, it's physically and mentally extraordinarily demanding. And here's the thing. I would say 20% of the guys in my platoon were spiritual seekers. 20%. Same program I was in. To the point that my sergeant, Sergeant Throneberry, identified us and brought us into his office in the middle of the night wow. and taught us the gospel of St. Bob, Robert Throneberry. Wow. So he was a spiritual guy. Yeah. He found the spiritual guys in the platoon, pulled us together, 
and as spiritual teachings in the middle of the night when I was in boot camp. That's unbelievable. I know. That's like, and I thought, doesn't that happen to everybody? Yeah. And apparently not. No. Yeah. So he, he, he found the others. Yeah. What, what do you think stood out? Like, what, were you asking certain questions? What was it? What? I, I, you know, uh, I came to notice when uh, uh, he, they, yell, they yell out something. So all Hebrew MFs report to the duty office. Because if no one reports, we do push-ups, so somebody reports. So I go, I think that's me. So I go, pound on the door. So one Hebrew MF reporting his order, sir. Enter. So I step in. He says, you're a Hebrew? I said, sir, yes, sir. He said, "Um, I have to tell you, there are Jewish services on Thursday nights at the Navy base, and there's going to be a van waiting for you. I said, sir, yes, sir. He says to me, what are you doing here? I went, that's like, sir? Yeah. He said, "Um, uh, how many people like you do? I just went right to it. How many people like you do you think there are in the Marine Corps? I said, sir, one in a thousand. He says, one in 10,000. Wow. He says, you'll have to wear a mask the whole time you're in. Do not let down your mask. This is the last time we'll have this conversation. He says, mask? Mask. The, the spiritual identity. Wow. He just, he look, I mean, I could tell the way he's looking at me. Yeah. Oh, like he was Jack Bishop. He was in the same, I, I could tell it was the look. You know, I call it the, you know, what was he warning you against, though? What, what, what was he... Revealing yourself to the average Marine, to, your, to my next sergeant, you know, to some corporal. Like, don't let them know that I'm on a spiritual wavelength because uh, it'll bring out the worst in people. So I learned I had to live the spiritual thing. I had to be very careful whom I spoke with and whom I was friends with and whom I spoke about it. But wait, why would that... I'm, I'm pushing back. Like I'm just, why, why would that trigger a sergeant or someone who... If you're trying to grow as a person, as a, why, why the, would that... You know, they're interested in you're being ready to die for your country and to follow orders implicitly, especially as a, as a junior Marine. You know, when you're a corporal and a sergeant, but um, a religious Marine is good. A spiritual Marine is, they don't know quite what to do with it. Hmm. I mean, it's not a box they have. So I was told, go to services. A religious Marine is a better Marine. Everybody knows. But a spiritual, like, like it was an unknown category. Hmm. So he just basically said, keep quiet about that. Right, right. Wow. And how did you find the Marine Corps, the training going through the three years? Uh, well, three months of boot camp and then three years in, in the Marine Corps. Three By the years. way, I, I was a, in division headquarters, so I didn't do hard infantry service. I was a, I was a headquarters guy. Hey, you, you stay for your service. You know, <laughs> everywhere going to cut it. It's, it's amazing. Um, how did that help you? How, did you... Did you find what you were seeking? Did you get satisfied Absolutely. with the spirituality? So boot camp... I, I was rid of all my adolescent bad habits. That's number one. Number two, I had to find inner resources I didn't know were there uh, because it was extremely difficult. Uh, and I, I, I felt like a new person. I did not know I had this degree of competence, this degree of discipline, this degree of focus. I, I, it was parts of myself were brought out that I did not know were there. So I would say it was a 100% success. And I didn't even really understand. The, how did I know this? When I was 17, 18. How did I know? But, yeah. but it was... It Your was soul a, was guiding you. My soul was guiding me. I had deep dreams in boot camp that I'll talk about someday and other really deep kinds of experience. And the extraordinary good fortune of having Sergeant Throneberry as my sergeant. Yeah. Because he, like Jack Bishop, my science nurtured teacher, you. he didn't nurture me. What he did was he drilled the platoon on two levels. One level for the spiritual guys... And one level for the rest of the guys. Mm. And he would teach stuff on, on different levels. 
Wow. Like a, like, like a secret language. Wow. So he would say the same thing, but you would pick it up in a different way? Yeah, because then he would look at me. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'll give you one story that I told because you seem yeah. interested in this. Uh, uh, so when we were doing the infantry part, the guys were getting bitten by snakes. Really? So he yells out, private snake charmer. So we all say, sir, private snake charmer, sir. And then we have to get down on our knuckles and do push-ups until private snake charmer shows up. And we're out in the, uh, in the, in the barracks saying, who's private snake charmer? Get up there. I come on, no one else is. So I run up, pound on the sir, private snake charmer, reporting was ordered, sir. He goes, uh, go get your snake charmer gear. Didn't miss a beat. I go back, I grab my tallis. I come back, and he has a snake in a can, and he says, charm the snake. I said, sir, yes, sir. So I sit on the floor, you know, cross legs. This just is happening. Just this, like, like <laughs> this most natural thing in the world. Oh, my God. I put my tallis over my head, and I start davening Mari from, you know, from Compton <laughs> Center. The snake pops up, like, who's davening Mari, right? Yeah. And he says, okay, tell the snake to quit biting the, pl- the, the Marines of Platoon 3077. I said, snake? Quit biting the Marines of Platoon 3077. Uh, he said, okay. So then we have another Marine called Private Snake Catcher. Whole different story. He goes, release the snake. So he puts the coffee can back and runs it out and releases the snake. And I thought, where did this come from? So he was always tripping. This guy's a trip. No, this... he was on another level. The Army had no idea this guy was doing this. No, the Marine Corps did. The Marine. He, he got, I believe he got in trouble later. Someone reported him. But he had... Complete. He and the other two sergeants, who didn't quite get him, but they knew he was there. They just didn't he was funky. Yeah, they knew Different. something was up. But he was a good marine, so you know. He, yeah. And he trained as well. Uh, so he had complete control over eighty guys. Fifteen or twenty of them were on the spiritual wavelength, and he could do anything he wanted. Wow. And I, I just sat back in admiration of this stuff guy. He, of the stuff he was pulling. <laughs> That's. That's incredible. I know. It's, it's like I felt also Jack Bishop sent one of his buddies to be my platoons. You know, my, my, He's got my, his people my, my out there. Yeah. You know, like, wow. Wow. That's, that's incredible. So you, you, you leave the Marine Corps. I know you go off to Israel and you join a kibbutz. Right. Um, I finished the Marine Corps I, in my uh, first semester after the military is when I decided I want to be a Marine. Uh, I'm sorry. I want to be a rabbi. So I got out in June 76. In October 76, I made a decision. Went to Hebrew to learn Israel and came back and began my undergraduate degree. To learn Hebrew. Oh, you, you were I, I went to Israel to learn Hebrew. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then you came back I came and, back and uh, began my undergraduate degree. Wow. Wow. So, and then, and, and you know a, a vast amount of, of, of knowledge when it comes to like to Torah and to Chassidus. Is there, is there one particular teacher that inspired you within, within the Jewish tradition that you give like a big nod towards that helped you become the rabbi, the leader, the teacher that you are today? Uh, a few things. Number one, I went to a very good rabbinical school, Hebrew Union College. Um, more or less left, left us on our own as far as the spiritual side, but I definitely learned the text. So I you know, studied Talmud and Bible and Jewish philosophy and history. So I got all the basics done from my rabbinical school. But at the same time, I was studying with a Hasidic teacher named Jonathan Omerman. Um, and he was a student of Adin Steinsaltz. Ah. So Omerman is the one who introduced me to uh, uh, Hasidus, to uh, Hasidic thought. Uh, first Chabad, Bretzlov, uh, and Svatimet. So when we began studying Svatimet together, that's when I was, I was sold. Yeah. I knew that that was my uh, text. I've been studying it for however the difference between 67 and 23 is, whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's how long. Um, 
when I was an undergraduate. Oh, sorry, I began studying when I, when I was in medical school, so I would have been 26. When I was an undergraduate, I had a mysticism course, and the professor who specialized in Eastern mysticism said, I don't really understand this Kabbalah thing. If you give the lecture, you already have an A, but I'll give you an A+. plus." So I read Gershom Sholem's book, Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism. And when I got to the, to the chapter on Kabbalah, uh, it was just, that's, that is I. That's, I mean, I mean it, the, the core Lurianic myth of Kabbalah, I knew to be true as much as any poetry can be true. Then the chapter on Hasidus. So I was 23 when I was already in Kabbalah Hasidus. So I would say Gershom Sholem, even though it's academic, I really, I really got it. Yonatan Omerman, who was my private uh, teacher. And then I would say I went back and did my doctorate in religion. And I'm going to just congratulate the entire USC School of Religion, both as an undergraduate and a doctoral student. It, it, it gave me the intellectual capacity to understand what is language, what is ritual, how do we study a text, all in theoretical, and I'm a theoretical person. So I would say my undergraduate degree, my graduate degree, excellent degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, Hebrew Union College where I studied. I also studied part-time at the Yeshiva Los Angeles. I studied uh, Talmud there for many years. Wow. Um, I, I, yeah. It was a great city for a serious young man to, yeah. to, to, to learn. So. Yeah. Um, does, that, does that answer your question? It does, 100%, deeply. Um, we have a few more minutes, but I wanted to just quickly, I wanted to jump on one last thing, which you talk about, and I think it's beautiful when it comes to interpersonal relationships. Um, I'm going to quote a, a quote from the military, Navy SEALs in particular. They go, under pressure, you don't rise to the occasion. You sink to the level of your training. That's why we train so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we talked about it, about it in, earlier in the podcast about, you know, how we could sometimes default into our, like, you know, our, our bad thinking. And mm-hmm. so there's something that you talk, you talk about the four C's and you also talk about the wall of virtue. Wall of virtue. I know it's, it's a lot to pack into a few minutes, but we just give a little. Sure. The, the wall of virtue comes from when I would be counseling either an individual in a tough relationship or a couple. And they would get triggered and then harsh things would pour out. Or abject defensiveness would pour out. And I would say, look, just don't talk. Don't talk. And they say, it's hard not to talk, and I cannot talk. And I would say, it's a wall. There's a wall, and your words, it's an internally built wall, and your words can't get past it. Like Your words hit the wall, and they bounce off. Next chapter of my book is called The Wisdom Mill. So where do the words go? They, mill, they get milled down into something meaningful. That's the, it's called The Wisdom Mill. But The Wall of Virtue, um, it, it, I think, is a good image. It's a useful metaphor, because when I would... When I would get a follow-up phone call, they said, I really got triggered. Rabbi Finley, wall of virtue really worked. I didn't talk. I took a breath. I went to a script. And so I want you to help me with the next step. But that metaphor has just given such dividends to so many people. And the idea is the training is don't talk, which is extraordinarily difficult for some people. Just don't talk. Take a breath. Go to a pre-devised script, which is training. So he's exactly right. Um, when you're triggered, go to your training. But you have to train. And I, in many times in my life, I did not know what to do, and I went to my training. And so the wall of virtue is the training. Don't make it worse with what you're going to say. Restrain it, wall of virtue. Mill it down in the wisdom mill, then talk. Mm. Yeah. 
to, uh, that's, I love that. And something that I will definitely apply to, uh, my daily life. What are some things you want to, anything you wanted to leave, uh, the audience with listeners with any uh, particular quote that inspires you or something that you just want to share? Well, maybe a little bit more about wisdom work. Uh, I do talk about virtue, rationality, wisdom as, um, regulating the inner life. The other side of it is I call the conceptual side, which is having a detailed vision for yourself. That one has to rework, has to be reality-based in your personality, your life circumstances. Uh, don't reach too low, don't reach too high, and constantly work on it to make it uh, relevant to your life now. So we have to have an ongoing vision. The second thing is the will. Many people have a nice vision. I call it running up the flag and saluting it, yeah. but they don't have the will to enact it. Mm. And that's where the Yetzirah comes in. The Yetzirah says, have any vision you want, because you'll never get there. Because I will make sure to infect the will. So it's always a good idea that you're going to do tomorrow. Okay? Mm. So cultivating the will is the next most important thing. And again, that is lifelong process. The next thing is the specific skills of fighting the Yetzir Hara. Okay? It's a battle. It's hand-to-hand combat. So when a person says, yeah, I'm willing to do it. And so my question is, and what happens when the Yetzir Hara arrives? Because the Yetzir is very clever, yeah. very strong. What are the specific skills that you're going to employ? So vision, will, skill, and the last thing is lifelong constant evaluation. Okay, so the acronym in Hebrew is uh, chazon, chet. Um, uh, will as kavanah, intentionality, is the kav. Miyumanut is skills, and hey is halacha, so chokmah. Yeah. So it's a nice, convenient little acronym. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little bow right there. Yeah, nice. Kind of bow. yeah beautiful. Rabbi Mordechai Finley. Uh, too short. We gotta, too short. We gotta I know. I can see why all these podcasts with you are two hours yeah, plus. Yeah. Um, I'd love to have you back on for a part my, two. My pleasure. Uh, this was wonderful, beautiful. Really good to know you uh, on a more personal level. And thank you for all the wisdom you shared today. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's been a wonderful experience. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast episode. Rabbi Finley, thank you. Thank you. It was so great to connect with you and to chat with you and to learn from you. Really a great honor. My friends, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast. Give it a, a comment. I'd love to hear from you, a rating, and share it if you like, if you're called to. Until next time, please stay positive, be happy. I'm Mayor Kay, and have a great day.